0: The following Dharma talk was given at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Good evening. Um, So tonight, the uh, topic of the uh, discussion, talk discussion, we'll have time for questions at the end, is um, uh, grief, letting go, and compassion. I will admit that I'm actually surprised at the number of people here. Um because um, the topic of grief that didn 't sound so great, did it? Let's see if that 's better um the The topic of grief is um, not one that people are always immediately attracted to so um <laughs> uh, i 'm impressed by the number of people who came um, because it's it 's a challenging subject uh, but I also find that um, well, I, I'm going to talk about grief in many different ways, but I find that it's an actual, I think, an integral part of the spiritual path. And, um, and that opening to it with mindfulness and, and compassion, uh, leads to a lot of joy and, um, connection. So that's why I wanted to talk about it. I read somewhere, uh, recently that there's people talk about high grief and low grief. And high grief is, um, you know, that experience when you really, you lose somebody who's very close to you. Um, and a very intense experience. Um, low grief is kind of more, um, like minor losses. And recently I had a low grief experience that I think kind of demonstrates what I was saying about how, um, grief opens us and connects us to life. And it also shows kind of the stages that we can go through with grief i think that often with grief first there's um resistance we don't want to feel it then there's the actual experience of grief and then there's a kind of um openness or um rebalancing that can come after that and so this experience happened uh, a couple weeks ago when i was working on this talk i like to work on a talk and then i go for a bike ride or a walk i exercise afterwards and it kind of Turns it all and reworks it all, and um, so I was sitting there working on, on this talk, what I wanted to say, and the neighbor's cat came over, and um, we have um, a lot of bird feeders, and therefore we have a lot of chipmunks, and this is a new cat in the neighborhood, so the neighbor's cat came over and caught one of the chipmunks, and um, I really like chipmunks. I'm very fond of them, and I like to think of our home as a chipmunk sanctuary. <laughs> and the chipmunks, I like to think of them as my friends. <laughs> and don't worry, I have human friends also, but um <laughs> but the chipmunks are dear to me. And so I was kind of upset and um I went off on my bike ride and I found that I was kind of churning about the experience, kind of thinking about just thinking about it a lot and um and at some point I realized that I was resisting what I was actually feeling. And what I was feeling was grief. And um, so I connected with that and just kind of let the process kind of work its way on my heart. Um, Let myself feel the loss of this chipmunk and and the pain of that. Um, And then after a while, I noticed that the heart kind of, it became more open and more open. And then there was this experience of kind of a compassionate connection to the poignancy of this of life, right? Whether it's a chipmunk life or as humans, Um, and there was a kind of fresh quality that came out of that—a fresh connection with with the the whole world around me, actually. And um, so, so it's like I went through those three stages, and like I said, this is not like I went through them very quickly, but it was a low grief experience. It wasn't like you know. They're not my dearest, dearest friends. They're just my friends, you know. <laughs> and um I do kind of know some of them particularly like in the wo- in the winter. <laughs> in the winter they have like certain pathways they'll make in the snow and they'll go back and forth so you kind of like know which one lives where and um <laughs> Yeah, they're sweet. Um, but that's so it's like part of life is loss, right? We lose. And we lose and we lose. And how do we connect with that? That's one of the reasons why I was saying that it's such an integral part of the spiritual path because the core teachings of the Buddha, you know, Anicca Natadukha, Anicca, change, that everything changes. And what that means is that life includes a lot of loss, you know? And grief, I think of grief Feeling grief is part of that process of touching that truth of life and coming to terms with it, which we have to do, right? If we're going to have this um, open and compassionate heart, we have to come to truth with the way things are. And denying grief though doesn't work, right? As I was denying the grief of the of the chipmunk loss, it, I was just it was turbulent. My mind and heart were turbulent. They wouldn't settle. In fact, as soon as I turned to the grief, then the settling started, the settling of the heart and the mind. Uh, a few weeks ago, I, I did a, a, an evening at my center on this topic. Um, and a young woman in the group, I, so I asked them, it was a smaller group than this, and I asked them what, why they came or what they were interested in. And one young woman she said, I want to know, what is grief? And it was such an interesting question. And, um, you know, I would say that grief is the response in the heart and the mind and the body to loss. And later in the group, um, I don't remember exactly what we were talking about, but she had tears running down her cheeks. And I said to her, that. <laughs> I think you know what it is. <laughs> She said, I just wanted to make sure. That's <laughs> yeah, very touching. Hmm. So I would say that this feeling of grief in the face of loss is just a fundamental human experience. And it's part of the process of accommodating to loss or accommodating to the truth of change. Whether it's to a thing, a person, a relationship, or on a spiritual path, our treasured illusions our treasured delusions we can experience a lot of grief on the path as our delusions are illusions about how life is get worked on we don't talk about this super amount it's not really good advertisement for the practice <laughs> but but i think sometimes it's comforting for people to know that it's a natural part of the the path because um you don't want to feel isolated around that or feel like you're doing something wrong if you have that response. One um, Zen teacher said that um, practice is active participation in loss. Active participation. So, real engagement with this truth of life. I also feel that grieving is an intensely um, spiritual activity um, because it blows open the heart, basically, <laughs> and it blows through the illusion of, of permanence. So it kind of blows us open to the truth of the unrefutable fact that everything changes. Culturally, we're, we don't. Grief is kind of considered to be in bad taste, I think, culturally. It's um, not so acceptable. Somebody said the true religions of America are optimism and denial. And uh, (laughs) I think there's uh, some truth to that. I think some other cultures have more kind of um, rituals that acknowledge grief and give it a little more space. Here we have the funeral, and then you should be done with it pretty pretty soon it should be cleaned up <laughs> but it feels like when i had this group the other night it what came up most often that was that what was very hard about grief for many people was the isolation that that the not having room for it somehow to be to be accompanied in that experience because of kind of the cultural tendency towards optimism and denial that um that, that that was what was most painful, and later we'll hear about how the Buddha dealt with that so we talked I talked a little bit about mindfulness of emotion in the um instructions, and so just basically with grief, when it does arise, we want to um Depending on the capacity of the heart and the, um, and the attention in the moment, turn towards that experience and, um, that even cuts the isolation if we can be there for ourselves or if the attention can be there for the experience. Um, so what is this experience of grief? How do we feel it in the body, connecting with it in the body and then connecting with it, um, in the mind? It's interesting because it tells, it does tell some stories. It, um, It tells stories such as, I can't bear this. That's a story of grief often, is I can't bear this, or I can't bear to go on without this person or this relationship. And grief, I think, contains the secret wish that our very wishing it to not be will make it not be. Right? There's a hidden... In grief, there's a hidden hope that our resistance to that truth will make it not be true. It's a, if there's a kind of protection from that. Or, or a belief sometimes that it shouldn't happen or it shouldn't be this way. Or that it will last forever. When, we're, when grief is really strong, there can be the belief that we will never be without grief again. Actually, that's true of any emotion that's very strong. It's just wild. That's one of the, I think that's one of the wonders of the world (laughs) or the human experience is that when we're lost in emotion, we can be so sure that it's going to last forever. Even if we can remember when grief is very strong that it's impermanent, that can be of some help because we forget that when grief is really strong, we really forget that, right? And so just if we can remember, oh, okay, this is how it feels now, and it's not going to feel this way forever. So the very act of um, paying attention to grief and being with it, I think, helps or allows more the transformation, like when I was with the grief around the chipmunk. you know, that experience of turning towards it and being able to hold it um, helped it to move and to change and to and to move on. Um, but also sometimes it's too strong. Sometimes we need to know how to move out of it. If grief is, if we're drowning in grief or overwhelming in it, then the important and helpful thing is like, how do I get out of this mind state? It's not helpful right now for me to be feeling this. It's um, there's not enough balance to be able to feel it. And, um, yeah, the group, it was interesting. One, one person said that, um, she looked for one beautiful thing every day. That, that would help her when she was in grief over her husband dying. And another woman said, wow, I did the same thing, she said, but I made myself document with my camera one beautiful thing every day. And it was like a way to kind of help her remember there's another world beyond grief. Help her to get um, some balance around it. So, anytime in practice that an emotion's too much for us to hold, it's it's helpful to know how we can move out for a period of time. Sometimes, when grief's really strong, you don't even have that option, right? Then it's just like you just you get scoured, your heart gets scoured and hollowed out by grief, and then it's like, how much compassion can you have for that experience happening? Compassion for, for the intensity. I think also grief is an interesting question for us Buddhists because. Okay, so there's lots of talk in Buddhism about non-attachment, right? So if um, so, sometimes we get this idea. Okay, the ideal is non-attachment. <laughs> And so, therefore, if I'm not attached or if I can be a quantumist, then I shouldn't feel grief. There, there's sometimes this little hidden kind of um, spiritual idealism there that somehow gets in. That one hurts. That one's kind of harmful, I think. <laughs> that one's not so helpful. Um, as as humans... Um, you know, this experience of being attached is, is very, very deep in our, um, in our being. So there's different ways you can look at attachment, but the human attachment to each other, like that's how we survive. That's how as a species we evolved to survive is through those bonds and, and to try to, um, think that, that Buddhism should deny that somehow seems to me, um, unhealthy or unhelpful. <laughs> They're saying it's not just humans, but like, I don't know if you can say all sentient beings, but all mammals maybe. I read the story about these elephants in a zoo in India. There were two female elephants that were housed together, and one of them died in childbirth, and the other female was inconsolable. She refused to eat or drink, and she wept, and she died of grief. So it seems to, in us mammals, right, this is such a, Strong thing. And the feeling of loss when, and a relationship ends or somebody dies. It's a, it's a real, ooh, primal experience, you could say. So I, I sometimes think about a story that I heard related to this, a story I heard about the Buddha. I actually haven't found it in the sutras myself, but I've heard it enough that I think it's gotta be somewhere. It said that when, um, he had two chief disciples, Sariputra and, um, Mughalanda, I don't don't get that name quite right, but uh, two chief disciples, and that they died, I think, pretty near each other, and they both died before him. And it said that he said that when his chief disciples died, it was like the sun and the moon went out of the sky. What did he feel? I'm, I'm just so curious about that. Like, so in theory, the Buddha didn't experience mental suffering. That's what is. That's what we hear, right? But to say the sun and the moon went out of the sky, he he felt something, something very strong, right? Some every once in a while we get some intimation of the Buddha's life in the sutras, and um. I'm really curious about the, the, the transmission of, um, the early teachings and, uh, what stories were left out or what stories were included or, you know, like that feels like a sneak, that feels like a, um, a sneak story that got in or something, (laughs) you know, you don't hear a lot of talk like that about the Buddha and, um. You can feel not talking about masculine and feminine as archetypes not as um, gender but as archetypes you can feel the um the feminine in that and the and the early teachings were preserved for five hundred years by male monastic monastic communities and I wonder how much um was lost. I, I, I just don't under, I'm not sure about that, but I'm curious about it. Because there's stories that come out that the Buddha seems, um, like his feminine elements come out. Like another story here, um, about attachment and grief. Uh, many of you know this story of Kisogatami in the time of the Buddha. She was a woman who, uh, she had a rough life. Most of the stories we have of the early nuns, she became a nun eventually, um, their lives, they were rough. <laughs> and so she had a rough life. And, um, but finally she wound up having a child, a boy at that time that was, that was considered much high status. And so she was finally, things looked like they might be going her way. And then the boy died and she, um, she lost her mind, basically, she you know so much grief that she lost her mind, and she wouldn't bury the child or not bury the child, have the child cremated. That's what they did, and still do pretty much and so she was carrying the child around trying to get somebody to, to save the child and um finally, they sent her to the Buddha, and the Buddha was like he did he he came up with like the most compassionate response and a and a very wise response when you think about it, he said to her. Um, I will save your child um, if you bring me three mustard seeds from a house where there's nobody's experienced death, where death hasn't happened. And so she went around the village, and she was asking at all these houses, has anybody died here? And everywhere it was like, yeah, somebody's died here. And um, it's such a great intervention because, first of all, it cut any sense of isolation, right, that she may have been feeling. And it gave her a chance to, to talk with people and to process the grief and to really, um, come to understanding kind of the universality of this experience. And so then she was able to find peace and she went back to the Buddha and, and she, um, had her child cremated and she became a nun. <laughs> um, but you can see the wisdom and compassion in his response and how he really got her to connect with the community and, um, so cut that isolation and, and uh and really develop understanding, both both of that. So very compassionate. And what you hear in a lot of the um a lot of the teachings, I haven't read as much from the early monks, but I've read a lot about the early nuns and and they almost all come to practice because of great loss. Grief. It's like grief is such a um it seems to be a key motivator for a lot of people to come to practice. One thing I notice a lot in, um, a number, it's a, it's a very common experience that people will come to practice after a breakup, after a relation breakup. And I hear it more from men than women, which is interesting. I'm not sure why, but often it's like a, a really difficult breakup or experience of grief will bring men and women, but I've heard a lot more from men to practice. So there is a way, right, that this grief kind of breaks us open and um makes us ripe for spiritual practice. It either we really feel like we need it, right? Or um or um that the heart gets open to that experience. Hmm. Uh the nun Aya Santa Chita gave some teachings in our area recently, and um she told the story about how when her um, mother died when she was twenty eight that that's what called her to practice so again that that experience of grief calling us to practice. So the other thing I, w- I said early on was that I'm really interested also in how grief is an integral part of the spiritual practice on the path and the transformation of the path. So many practitioners find that as they deepen in practice that they have to tra- transverse um, different landscapes of grief. And part of it is the grief of um, losing our treasured delusions. And part of it is just seeing more and more deeply the truth of change. Of all that arises, passes away. Sometimes we may think, oh, I came to practice for stress reduction. And um this doesn't feel like that. <laughs> the path does offer stress reduction, but Often if if we go really deep into the practice, we will go through periods that do not feel like stress reduction, that feel actually like increased stress. It's really true. Um, Because what happens is we start to see through our cherished illusions that really protect us, the illusions that protect us, the illusions of permanence, for example, the illusions of... um, satisfactoriness that we will find something that's really going to do it that there is some solution we just haven't figured it out together there's some solution in this mundane existence that's going to really figure everything out for me and so we have these um, cherished illusions and then the practice as we look more and more deeply it's like wow we start to see that um, it's a wild 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 world we live in and it's pretty uncontrollable and there's no permanent solution. And that can disappoint us. It's like, damn. (laughs) That's what I came looking for and you're telling me, like, that's not what I'm going to (laughs) get? It's a kind of disillusionment process and it can lead to grief. And yet, as when we're with that, with honesty and um, care, Kindness. Equanimity grows. Equanimity, the ability to be with this world as it truly is. And that's where the rest is. That's where the rest for the heart is. And that's where the um, joy then can spring forth from. The joy and the real connectedness. Right? Because if we're guarding the heart from the truth, we can't really connect. But to let, to begin to dissolve that, the guarding the heart from the truth, we have to be disappointed. And then we have to grieve that disappointment. And then the heart can open. In the book, I read a book, The Grace of Aging, and the author mentioned, um, Ken McLeod, who's a, I think a Zen teacher, I mean a Tibetan teacher. He said, at every stage of practice, there is a price to be paid for increased clarity and greater freedom. The price is the loss of another illusion. And the author continues, we grieve our way to awakening paying our way with the release of all of our cherished and convincing fictions. Does that bum you guys out? I I think it's beautiful, personally. (laughs) I hope I'm not bumming you out. (laughs) (laughs) To me, it's there's something poignantly beautiful about that. We grieve our way to awakening, paying our way with the release of our cherished and convincing fictions. It's great. It's fantastic. and yet it's not kind of up there somewhere is it <laughs> it's it's grounded it's down here mm-hmm. so we allow the space so the practice and the and and the tool of mindfulness allows um the heart its space to feel grief and to allow grief to transform and to transform us. And when grief runs its course, what we find is that eventually it settles, it settles, it rests, it settles into this deep compassion, that compassion that's not resistant to the truth of the way things are, or that's open to the way things are. And um, this wide open space is um, a place of rest. So so we see the heart goes through the denial stage of not wanting to feel, right? And then there's the the grief itself which can manifest in so many different ways. I think some of you know a number of years ago I wrote a talk on the um it started with the 13 kinds of fear that I'd experienced in practice and the 13 got up to like 22 I think. And then um and then I got interested in anger for a number of years. And it's like the number of kinds of anger that I experienced in practice. I got up to 24 for that one. And um, it was so sweet. I just taught this redito in español. I just taught a retreat in Spanish. And I mentioned something about the 24 kinds of anger. And at the end, one guy comes up to me and they, they, when people are saying goodbye to me. And he said, my anger list is up to 39. <laughs> I said, "Wow, that's really great." <laughs> I don't know if he if he meant that literally, but it was pretty impressive. Um, and then I was like, "How the kinds of grief? Like, wow, there's so many different kinds of grief." I haven't written a list. I don't know how many kinds I've experienced, but there's some. Um, I wrote them down somewhere here. I can't remember what they are at the moment, but. Oh, I've been going through my pages differently. Oh, well, you're not going to hear them. <laughs> All the different kinds, but I think some of you know. There's numb, right? There's numb grief. There's violent grief. There's there's a hollow heart grief. There's tears, teary grief, right? Many kinds. You can say with grieving what we allow is we allow our hearts to break. We allow our hearts to break and that means to open. Because a broken heart is a heart that can feel and connect and respond. And that's alive. One place that I've worked some with grief is around um, climate change. And I think a lot of us, um, you can see the stages also in the response to climate change. So um, there's the resisting the grief, right, or resisting the truth, <laughs> And, um, I mean, we all do, we all do that to a certain extent. It's like we're all trying to learn how to accommodate to that truth and it doesn't happen like, like grieving a loss. It takes time. You kind of, with, with the bigger losses, you cycle through the denial, the feeling and the openness. And you might, you know, go back and forth and back and forth and go on rounds and arounds. And I see that with climate change, like, um, So there's the not wanting to believe it or the resisting that experience, the truth of that experience, because it's so huge, right? And um, I find, like, I let the truth in a little at a time, right? And sometimes there's a lot of grief. Uh, I like to walk in the woods a lot, and sometimes I'm really open to how the environment's changing and and um, many levels, right? There's so much. I'm not going to go into all of it. Partly because it's so intense for all of us to talk about it, but there'll be that, I'll let my heart break around it. I'll let myself really feel it. And then I come out the other side, the, the other side of grief, which is, which is compassion and openness and like, wow, actually we have no idea what's going to happen. Maybe as humans we'll make an evolutionary leap because of the pressure of that's how humans have always made evolutionary leaps is because there's been intense pressure on the species, you know. So who knows? Our openness, possibility, freshness, compassion. That's what happens when we go through the grief. So, you know, and then I'll go back into denial and, uh, and go through cycling. I think it's interesting culturally to look where we're at too in those uh, um, stages around climate change. So, um, mostly we're in denial, right? It's not like it was ten years ago, but it's still mostly denial. And some people have said, and I think it's really interesting, it's like what's gonna happen when um when the denial like really starts to go? It's gonna be a wild, interesting time for us humans, especially with the young people. Like how is that response gonna be? Um and there are probably whole different shades of grief, including anger. That's one of the shades of grief, too, is anger. Um, what a journey we're going to take, huh? Oh, who knows how it's going to turn out? Hmm. But I feel like when I can allow myself to experience that and to feel the grief, it's healing. It's healing to feel it. So grief takes us on a journey. We don't always know where the journey will go. But if we allow grief, if we allow that experience and let us take us on a journey, we grow in some way. We deepen in some way. We deepen because it forces us into the truth, a journey of truth. Grief is a journey into accommodation to the truth. and if we face grief honestly and courageously we see that it opens our hearts to a tender connection with all beings and and a tender connection with the truth that we all share this universe of change anicca impermanence i think so we have time for questions i'll just end with a poem that um somebody Uh, shared with me recently. Did I read that poem at home? I might have. Hold on. That's too bad. I liked it. (laughs) (laughs) I don't see it here. (laughs) I guess I won't end with a poem. (laughs) Yeah, it was... um, very sweet,, hmm. the poem is at my sister's house. <laughs> <laughs> Let's just um sit for a minute, and then there will be time for some questions, or thoughts. It's so funny that de, the denial stage i'm like, if I look through one more time i 'm sure it's in here, right <laughs> but it's not <laughs> there was one other um thing I wanted to say that actually didn 't quite fit in my talk, but it it 's related to the subject so um a few days ago uh, my father wound up in the hospital, so my father is um he's at an age and, and with an, you know, his health is at a place where there are kind of more and more crises (laughs) and, um, it's never clear which one might be, um, you know, the beginning of the real end of his, you know, leading to his death. And, um, so he's been in the hospital three times in the last two weeks and, uh, So a few days ago when I got the call that he was in the hospital, um, the thought I had was, I'm so glad I've healed my relationship with him. My father and I had some bad years, a number of years, where we were pretty much um, estranged from each other, about 10 years or so. And I really decided at a certain point that I wanted to heal that relationship and um, that it was important to do that. And um, we've done it. We've done it. And it was that was my biggest comfort at that moment was that that we'd done that. So if there's somebody that you have a relationship that you want to heal, start early. You know, (laughs) you know, it's gonna take a long time. It took years. It took years to heal our relationship. A number of years. It's like don't put it off, because it's a refuge when they do die. That you have. You know, that, that things are cleaned up as best they can be. So I just wanted to share that because maybe it'll make a difference to some, one or somebody out there. Yeah. I mean, that's a whole other grieving process, right? It's like when we, um, Well, our own aging is a grieving process, (laughs) like the limitations that come with. I mean, I'm only 55, but I already know about (laughs) some of the limitations. I mean, I know I'm only on the beginning at the end of that journey, but um, you know, our own aging and um, because that's loss, that's letting go, letting go, right? And then also, if we have parents um, or have gone through this process with our parents of of them, my father's losing certain capacities, and That's a journey, isn't it? That's <laughs> a journey also mm-hmm. so there's time if there's um questions about anything in the talk. yes, uh-huh. I'll just we have a microphone here if you can wait, you have to wait long.
1: <laughs> I'll try uh, if first Rebecca, your your description of the utility of dissolution as part of the path, I I thought was just wonderfully candid and effective, and uh, I think it just helps someone have it sink in a little deeper. So I thank you for that. Um, Regarding the Buddha's response to the loss of Sariputta and Moggallana, I'm wondering if we could draw an analogy to the way the Buddha would respond to physical pain. Mm-hmm. Uh, purportedly, the Buddha had a bad back, so he, yeah. he had physical pain. But since he didn't shoot himself with the second arrow, yes. he didn't have suffering the way many of us would. Well, isn't it logical that he could have psychological pain for yeah, losing yeah, his two dear yeah. friends, but he wouldn't have the psychological suffering that many of us would have? Is that a useful way to think about it, or what are your thoughts?
0: I, I do think there's something useful to that, because we can even see in our own experience that when we um, resist any uh, psychological pain, that when we resist it, we suffer, <laughs> and that there's a way that we can be with it that we don't, right? That that when there's not the resistance that second arrow, when it's not there. We can even see in our own way the truth of that. So it's kind of like when I had the the experience with the chipmunk. You know, the suffering was actually that turbulent phase when I was resisting the truth, right? And then as I could be with the grief more and more, Yeah, it it lost its suffering quality. So, yeah, I think there's something. Thank you for bringing that up and thinking about it that way. Yeah, very helpful. It's always wonderful
2: to hear you speak, Rebecca. When you talked about your uh,
0: process of healing with your father, something came to me that I had never thought about before. My dad died when I was like 29, way before I had been practicing, and there's a lot of unresolved stuff from that relationship and I'm wondering how I can bring my practice to that, yeah, even though my dad has been gone for a long time. Great question I think um in some i mean in some ways, a lot of it's the same <laughs> a lot of it's like seeing what comes up for us emotionally allowing ourselves to feel it with mindfulness and compassion and to allow that journey to unfold right so let's say there's lots of anger so we're with the anger towards this person if we're very honest about anger and we're mindful of it it will transform into something else it won't last or you know it won't last forever so maybe it transforms into um hurt then maybe it transforms into sorrow and then maybe that transforms into understanding so we can it's it's basically a practice of forgiveness right of learning um, of taking the journey through our emotions um, with an, enough honesty that eventually forgiveness arises through understanding so what we come to understand Often what we come to understand with our parents is that, um, that suffering basically just gets passed on through generations and that there's no place you can place blame, you know? So we try to blame our parents, but we can't because our parents were raised by their parents who were raised by their parents who were raised, you know, like it just, it, it, where you can't find where, any place to place the blame. That's the way you get to forgiveness. There's no place to put blame. But to get to there, you often have to be willing to feel a very deep kind of sorrow. A grief? Basically, a kind of grief, sorrow place that, um, you could say accepts very deeply the imperfection of this world. So in some ways it's, it's the same process, you know, if you can't clean it up before they die, you can clean it up afterwards. And it's worth doing because, because the experience of non forgiveness binds your heart, right? Your heart's wanting the release or the freedom. Is that helpful at all? Yeah. I'm just trying to think if I can say anything else about that. Um, I know that part of my experience of of forgiveness is uh, seeing seeing for myself how much I mess up too. (laughs) There's something about really seeing um, how um, I create suffering that lets me um, have more space around others who create suffering. Because I don't have to make them quite so different than me. <laughs> and as I can forgive myself and and, and don't have to, um, you could say don't have to hate myself for the suffering that I cause, it's like a template that I can use with others that I don't have to also hate them or be angry at them. Still, we hold people responsible for their actions. I don't want you to misunderstand what I'm saying there. Um, But we understand that all of us cause suffering because of our own suffering. So when you see that process within yourself, or when I see that process within myself, then I can see it within others with more ease. So that helps too, yeah. This.
2: When when you lose somebody who's very close to you, it causes you to face up to the reality that someday you, you will die
1: too.
2: Yeah. How do you face? that anguish and that fear and that anxiety of, of,
0: of your own yeah.
2: eventual death?
0: Well, one thing that comes to mind is that if the... Um, in little bites, maybe. <laughs> like if the experience... So contemplating... Our own impermanence in others, like knowing that we're gonna die and that others that we love are gonna die. Usually we have to take that in really small bites because it can be too intense. Like you said, anguish, right? We can, hanging out in anguish is probably mostly not so helpful. <laughs> like to touch anguish and to know that anguish is there is helpful. But if, but if the experience of being with it is binding us tighter, then it's helpful to move out of it, right? And so you, you can dip into it, but you can also no, know how to move out of it. It doesn't mean that you move out of knowing the truth that you will die, but it means that you know how to um, move out of the entanglement in emotion around it, which doesn't serve any purpose. Move. How do you move? Move
2: out of it and still acknowledge it as being there?
0: Well, I think what you can do is you can acknowledge it, you know, briefly acknowledge that, wow, oh, that's true, and look at what it does to my heart. Oh, oh, you know, oh, right? Then you move out of it, <laughs> so you've acknowledged it. But then you to move out of it is a mindfulness practice, actually. It's as important as knowing how to be with emotions is a mindfulness practice of how do I get out of emotions that aren't, doing me any good. You know, they're not I because I can't be with them, really. And um I mean if you can, there might be a way that you can be with anguish, that you can actually be with it mindfully and care about yourself while you're with that experience, then there may be some transformative power there. If you can actually care about that anguish, that may that 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 may be a place to hang out that's okay. But if But if there's, you know, a tightening and tightening and kind of a sinking feeling, that's usually not so good. And so then the practice is, what do I need to do to get out of here? And, you know, like I said, my my students, say one of them, you know, would go out with her camera and walk and take pictures of beautiful things. Like that helped her to get out of it. It's like we have to, we learn how our different ways of getting out of it. Somebody might call somebody. For me, sometimes when I'm in emotional states that I find not so useful, I'll clean the house. That works really well for me, and you get a clean house. You know, it's an extra bonus in there. So, (laughs) you know, so it's part of the practice is knowing for yourself what how to really take care of this human heart, body, and mind. Yeah, does that helpful?
2: Yeah. Uh, it, it's something you have to keep repeating to yourself all the time because uh, the tendency is to get hung up on it and not move out of it. So, and I think it it helps to come in here and and talk yeah. about these things. Yeah. And I have more questions, but I won't ask. Them.
0: There's, I mean, there's a lot I could say on that. I just taught a five week class at our at our, our, our um, meditation center about intimacy with life and death was the title of the class. And um, it was for older folks, for seniors from 55 on. <laughs> I just made the cut. <laughs>
2: um, One thing I've done is I've I've I wanted to talk to young people who've been soldiers in the war because they they yeah. have to face death yeah. all the time whereas most young people in our culture don't have to but i i think if you go in a war like iraq or afghanistan it's always there
0: that's I mean, a great idea yeah so finding some way that you can visit the subject that um feels that there's some balance and growth and transformation within it for yourself and not a sinking into unhelpful mind states. Yeah, so that's a great idea, what you just said. Because there's connectedness with that too, and it sounds like connectedness helps you to absorb that truth, that when you can connect with others around it, it helps you to bring in that truth in a way that feels more balanced, is what I'm hearing you say. Yeah, so you're finding your own little way there. huh?
2: Yeah, but, 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 but what I'm afraid of is when it comes time to die, I won't have uh, accumulated all the wisdom that I need.
0: <laughs> the Buddhas say you'll get another lifetime, so you get another chance. But there's also like one thing that you can just do is just like at, at the end of each breath, let go. You know, like that's a practice of dying. You know, so there's little ways that you can like. Um, it's all about learning to let go because death is a great letting go. Basically, that's what it is. You know, like letting go of everything, right? Letting go. That's 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 what you don't want to resist at the end, right? Is a letting go. So it's like every all the there's so much practice in letting go in life. So how do we let go? How do we let go? How do we go, flow gracefully with the fact that everything's moving, 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 you know? Um, so there's like that that level we can practice at without even, you know, having to name that death, right? But basically, active participation and loss, that's what practices and loss, loss, it's just another word for death. Yeah. Yeah, we could talk for, we could talk a long time about that.
2: (laughs) Okay, I'll just say one final thing. Um, there, there was a young man who was a soldier in Iraq and all the bullets were flying around him and he saw his fellow comrades being killed and all that. And he said that when you're in that situation, you don't think about being rich, you don't think about being Famous, you just think about taking that next breath.
0: That's true, isn't it? Yeah. Mm. One time, I was um, I was uh, having surgery, and um, so I, I got the anesthesia right, and um, I I tasted the I could taste the anesthesia. I tasted it like I think it was in the back of my throat, right. And after I tasted the anesthesia, my next thought was, I could die. <laughs> my th- next thought was, what do I want my last thought to be? And my next thought was metta. And two mettas, and then I went out, you know, into the anesthesia. It was like practice. It was really interesting. <laughs> it was, and you know how fast that is between tasting the anesthesia and being out. So that I made it slow, but it was like, I can't say it as fast as it happened, but it was like, I could die. What's my next thought? What What do I want my last thought to be meta Meta? And can practice. Maybe that's a good place to end. It's a couple minutes before um nine. I think somebody has some announcements to take. Tom, come on up.